Today's episode is sponsored by a brand new podcast, The Primary Ride Home, the podcast that will help keep you up to date on the primary elections without wasting your time. Someone is going to challenge Donald Trump for the White House. The Primary Ride Home is dedicated to figuring out who that someone, or even multiple someones, will end up being. Every day at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist and This American Life contributor Chris Higgins catches you up on what happened on the campaign trail, who's up, who's down, what issues are getting traction, what the polls say. It's a 15-20 to minute show that keeps track of all the latest and summarizes it so you don't have to be nervously refreshing your browser 12 times a day. It's like TLDR as a service. So if you want to catch up on what you missed on your way home, search your podcast app and subscribe to the Primary Ride Home podcast. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about how racism, sexism, and classism is permeating the algorithmic systems that are directing more and more of our online and offline lives. Clips today come from Analysis, Inflection Point, Le Show, You Are Not So Smart, and The Chauncey DeVega Show. So there's been a lot of focus on algorithms lately, but algorithms have actually been around for thousands of years. Algorithm is an Arabic word originally, and there are ways we've used mathematics to improve our lives. The big change that's been taking place is that we have a lot more data than we used to have before, and that means that algorithms perform a lot better. Sophia Alheda is director of University College London's Centre for Data Science. An algorithm is often a sequence of very repetitive steps, and that's what machines are a lot better at than humans. The easiest way to think about it is when you're cooking something like a dish that you haven't done before, and the recipe is like an algorithm. And why it's important to have a recipe as an analogy is you need to do the steps in the right order. If you try to add the eggs to the cake after you've already put it in the oven, it's not going to work. And in a way that you use ingredients to bake a cake, algorithms often use data in order to decide on the steps that you're taking. In the modern world, we are assessed by algorithms, sometimes for things which are trivial, like which books you might also like, but other times for things which are essential. My partner of many years was attacked when walking back from the corner store to our house and beaten really very badly and underwent a lot of reconstructive surgery. In America, with its private healthcare system, automated assessments can have devastating consequences. One of the hardest moments in that process was the moment at which we were told that we no longer had health insurance by our pharmacy when I went to pick up some pain medication for him. It suddenly had just disappeared. Virginia Eubanks is a professor of political science at the University at Albany in upstate New York. She's also the author of a book called Automating Inequality. And it was while she was writing this book that the power of algorithms became shockingly evident to her. I began to suspect that we had been red flagged for insurance fraud. We weren't married. He's covered as my domestic partner. And because a lot of his treatment happened at night, these are many of the things that go into the algorithm that targets people for investigation. This red flagging meant she was denied coverage for $62,000 worth of medical bills, although that decision was eventually reversed. Companies often sift through data to look for patterns of behavior, which might indicate some abuse of the system. If you've ever been contacted by your credit card company about an irregular transaction, 
you've encountered this technology. But if the numbers are wrong, as in Virginia's case, how do you fight a nameless, faceless algorithm? I was very lucky in that I had a lot of knowledge about what might be happening, and we fought back. For most folks, they actually deal with these kinds of investigations in many different areas of their lives at the same time. The subtitle of her book is How High-Tech Tools Profile, Police, and Punish the Poor. She argues that low-income people are being forced into a digital poorhouse by automated systems deployed by government agencies. Let me give you an example. So one of the systems that I study is called the Allegheny Family Screening Tool. Allegheny is a county in the U.S. state of Pennsylvania. And it's a statistical model that's supposed to be able to predict which children will be victims of abuse or neglect in the future. And it uses all the data that is collected by the county on who uses public services and state and county benefits. So a team of economists and social scientists and data scientists built this model. It identified 131 factors that they believe are closely correlated with future abuse and neglect. And it gives families a risk score between zero and 20 that helps guide the decision of which families will be investigated for child abuse. And so I understand where the impulse to try to predict which children might be at risk or in danger, I absolutely understand that impulse. But from the point of view of families who are targeted by these systems, they feel that their behavior in the future has already been pre-described for them and that it kept them from being recognized as agents in their own life who make their own decisions. Artificial intelligence algorithms rely on vast amounts of data. And while spotting patterns in all these figures may be a superhuman feat, the machines get their information from humans. And humans are prone to bias, inadvertently acting for some people and against others. Professor Eubanks worries that responsibility for decisions people find too hard to make are being outsourced to computers functioning as a sort of empathy override. One of the things that is a real problem with these systems is really about how much political control do we want to give to machines in managing what are really incredibly important political and human questions in our communities. So questions about who deserves a home and who doesn't. Questions about which families should be broken up by the state. When I asked folks, I know that you've had tough interactions with human caseworkers in the past. Would you rather have a computer or a caseworker making decisions for you? Every single one of them said, I'd rather have that human being because you can't argue with a number. Many organizations are bringing these discussions into the public eye. Among them, a select committee of the House of Lords, which put out a report on artificial intelligence in April. It suggested dozens of recommendations to harness the potential these technologies offer. And Sophia Olheda of UCL regularly contributes to working groups at the Royal Society, considering how to manage data in the 21st century. 
I think what we really have to be clear about is there's always a cost to any decision. So if you decide that you don't want algorithmic decision taking, then you will also pay the price of that because there is a lot of benefits to using the accuracy of all the knowledge that lies in the data we've collected about ourselves. And there are real benefits to be gained by using artificial intelligence where the human brain would be slow and inefficient. Some are clear-cut, like advances in medical innovation, but others are more provocative. They can do more of what we want to accomplish, which is to prevent harm, than we can do by simply taking a look at this vast sea of information without any framework for deciding how to set priorities, how to allocate resources. Professor Lawrence Sherman is a criminologist and an expert in predictive policing in the UK and the US. He believes algorithms can be enormously helpful in an overburdened justice system. If we think about it, we're rational enough to see that many of the people that you might expect to be making these decisions, especially in police call centers, lack experience on the street in policing, Yet at the moment, we are trusting those people to decide what's an urgent police call and what isn't. If you have a call taker asking a series of questions and putting it into the machine that has been programmed by humans, that's a whole lot better policy for allocating scarce resources than the recent threat, risk, and harm system that call takers in police departments in Britain were trained to use. And what they did in one police agency was to classify 85% of all calls to the police as urgent. An algorithm wouldn't do that. Professor Sherman is the architect of a predictive policing system called the Harm Assessment Risk Tool, which is being trialed in the Durham Constabulary. The aim is for the algorithm to assist the police by determining how much risk is posed by an individual in police custody. This calculation may help determine who remains in detention and who is set free, though it will always come down to a human to make the final decision. The software is inspecting somebody's criminal history, their previous record of being arrested or charged or convicted or having attended prison or having been charged with carrying a gun or a knife and what age they were when they were first charged with a serious crime. So these are very powerful predictors that are put into the analysis that the software program puts into the statistical model, which then releases the conclusion that it's a high, medium, or low-risk person. How much responsibility does the algorithm have for the decision that's made? Well, that's up to the people who design the algorithm. But what happens if the algorithm gets it wrong? Algorithms get things wrong all the time, but so do clinical decision-making. So the appropriate question is, who gets it wrong more often? The individual full of their emotions and what they had for breakfast and how badly they slept last night? Would you rather have the individual with all those limitations or have a consistently programmed and transparently inspectable algorithm that people can argue over not only before the fact, but also after the fact. I think something that is important to understand that an algorithm not only tells you how it's going to make the decision, it can also tell you how it did make the decision. And humans can't tell you how they make decisions. So people don't behave the way they think they say their decision processes are working. In that sense, I think machines are also potentially more moral than humans because we can 
absolutely inspect every step in their decision process, and we can't get inside people's heads to do that. But not every algorithm is as transparent as that, as one case in the American state of Wisconsin illustrated quite vividly. This was somebody who was charged with two offenses that don't normally call for imprisonment. But after the offender was convicted, the judge in the case was given a pre-sentence report that included the results of an algorithmic analysis of this person's behavior, which was secret. It was a proprietary business secret of the company that was paid on a for-profit basis to compute the algorithm that said that this person was dangerous and that the judge took that into account. This offender, having been sentenced with an algorithm that he couldn't inspect, or his lawyers and experts couldn't inspect, appeals to the Wisconsin State Supreme Court, and they say, that's okay, if that's the way the judges want a sentence, that's fine. That case went to the Supreme Court, which reached the same conclusion, even though the U.S. Constitution says that you have a right to confront your accusers and to cross-examine them. Well, how can you cross-examine an algorithm that you can't even see? I think of Google and search engines in general as my second brain. It's there when I want to remember something trivial, like that actor's name in that movie or the title of that song stuck in my head. It's there when I'm doing research on a guest or when I'm talking with my production team about an author or a recent article I read. Need the answer to a question? Just Google it. And considering the fact that Google processes 40,000 search queries every second, which translates to 1.2 trillion searches per year worldwide... I googled that stat, by the way. It's safe to say that nearly everyone with an internet connection or a mobile phone has adopted search engines as their backup brain. Empowering, right? But what if using this backup brain is backfiring on us? What if our reliance on search engines is perpetuating oppressive ideas and hateful ideologies, even swaying elections between those mundane pieces of information? My guest, Dr. Sophia Umoja Noble, was in library information school when she began to notice something that made her extremely uncomfortable. Everybody was talking about Google like it was the new public library. So that was the first moment where I was like, wait, hmm, that's interesting. Sophia had worked in marketing for 15 years before returning to grad school to study library science and had always seen Google for what it really is, an advertising platform. And we, the searchers, we aren't their customers. Advertisers are. So you have this combination of paying to optimize content, paying to make content visible, and then people clicking on that content, which signals it's credible or viable. So what does this really mean? Certain kinds of industries or ideologies can wholesale take over uh, keywords and identities and communities. That's right. The information you see in those search results are heavily manipulated through a strange, complicated digital dance, also known as an algorithm. 
One day, a colleague of Sophia's, Dr. Andre Brock out of Georgia Tech, suggested she Google black girls. And when she did, she saw that the top search results were images that perpetuated negative stereotypes, misogyny, and exploitation. And it wasn't just black girls, of course. It was Latina girls, Asian girls, um, you know, who are also kind of victims of being pornified in Google search results. I know the temptation is to Google it for yourself, but thankfully, since Sophia went public with this, Google has changed the results a bit. We think of the internet as the great equalizer, but the algorithms behind it, created by humans, is serving up content that is sexist and racist and biased. That discovery was the beginning of an investigation that eventually became Sophia's book, Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. Dr. Sophia Noble joined me from a studio at the University of Southern California, Annenberg School of Communication, where she's an assistant professor. First, I did a very systematic study of um, a whole host of different identities. And uh, I used the census categories as a way to kind of have a starting point for thinking about various kind of racial and ethnic categories, and then, you know, pairing those with boys, girls, men, and women. Um, And so there were, you know, over 80 different combinations that I looked at. And people often ask me, of course, what happens when you search for white girls or white boys or white men? And I find that to be one of the interesting phenomena because, uh, you know, usually you'll get something like either White Chicks, the movie by the Wayans Brothers, which was very popular on a search for white girls for a long time. But you might get other things like objects, you know, white girls dresses, which meaning, you know, girls dresses that are the color white. So white becomes that kind of a descriptor. It's not an ethnic or a cultural descriptor. It's more of like kind of a color associated with various kinds of objects. Uh, So that's, I think, interesting. And part of that is because, as we know, in the United States, most white Americans don't think of themselves as white. They just think of themselves as Americans or as their own kind of specific identity. Uh, So that's, you know, something that I try to think through the complexities of that. But I was also interested in certain kinds of concepts. So, for example, if you did a search uh, for a long time on the word beautiful, Beautiful was synonymous in Google image search almost exclusively with images of white women. Um, And again, you don't have to add the words women to the word beautiful, but conceptually Google images framed beautiful as kind of thin women who fit the kind of standard beauty, contemporary beauty standard. So I looked in the book at Uh, kind of specific identities, but then I looked at other kinds of concepts. And one of the things that I always have found interesting is that for many years, I've talked about that specific example of beautiful and how I thought that something like nature would be represented as the concept of beauty, at least first in Google image search. And over the years, I've noticed that Google has actually changed its algorithm. And now when you do a search on beautiful, you often get nature. So I find that, you know, an interesting kind of quiet, uh, silent relationship between Google and I, um, or its programmers mm-hmm. and, and some of its critics, right, or the criticisms that are levied, not just by me. Of course, 
uh, you know, people like Jesse Daniels, Siva Vaidyanathan, who wrote a, wrote a great book, The Googleization of Everything and Why We Should Worry. Jesse Daniels wrote a great book called Cyber Racism. I mean, they've talked about this phenomena, for example, for many years of doing a search on the word Jew and uh, being led to Holocaust denial sites or anti-Semitic sites. And, uh, you know, that's, I, I really trace even the kind of contemporary um, moments where that's happened, you know, on a variety of different searches that just get co-opted either by white supremacists or by large uh, industries like the porn industry. Yeah. Well, th- I mean, the basic question in your book, I think, frames it up perfectly, which is to say, is it willful neglect or is it a profit imperative that is making money from racism and sexism? Like, who stands to benefit from having these images come up when the person searching is theoretically searching on what they think is just a, an amazing, well, as you said, new public library? Right. I mean, one of the things I always try to stress to people is that Google search is not a kind of a public information portal akin to a library or a public library. It's really an advertising platform. And you can optimize a lot of content. Uh, You know, I mean, Google's main interest is optimizing content for its advertisers, for its clients, for people who pay it to make their content visible. That's the entire premise of Google search. And so that we don't understand how profitable racism and sexism are um, is one of the reasons why I try to historicize some of these things and say, well, look, before we had the internet, racial stereotypes were really profitable in other places like Hollywood. Sexism has been really profitable. Um, you know, sexually objectifying women is something that's been with us for a long time. And industries have made a lot of money off of that. And now those same practices are happening in an environment like the internet and in Google search and not just Google. I mean, I could have really picked any big commercial search engine. It's just that Google is the monopoly leader and everyone else is trying to be like them. So it's important to study kind of who sets the tone for everyone else who's in the ecosystem. For those who you know don't have a marketing background, who don't really understand how Google works, who just think the search bar pops up, I put in a request and ta-da, there's, you know, the results. Um, can you explain a little bit about how those search results do get pushed to the top and rankings and, you know, optimization and all these terms that marketers fling about, but the everyday person may have no clue about? So there's a primary mechanism by which Google uh, is looking to kind of do sense making of, uh, of content for its clients. Now, a lot of people think that, you know, you and I, everyday people, that we are Google's customers, but we are not because we don't really pay Google. I mean, that's how you become a customer. Large companies, big industries, and even everyday people who might use its advertising mechanism, which is called AdWords, um, engage in basically a 24 by 7 real-time auction to pay for certain words to be associated with their content. In essence, what they're saying is, I'll outbid the next person to make sure that when these keywords are used, they're connected to my content. 
right? So if you're in a large company, for example, let's say you're a big automotive company. Well, you might have thousands of small little sites from all kinds of marketing campaigns that you've done, all kinds of events that you've done, as well as the commercials, all of the brand activity. And so you are, in essence, hyperlinking all of your sites back to a key domain, you have a big footprint, so to speak, and you're optimizing a lot of content. And this is why you often find very large companies and big industries who hit the first page of search results when you're looking for something. It's one of the reasons why um, even in the media industries, you're often going to find large corporate kind of multinational or national media organizations who will show up on the first page because they have a lot of content and they are also trying to um, make sure that content is visible. So people are both looking at that content and when they click on that content, that sends a signal um, kind of back into the ecosystem that this content might be legitimate or viable. It's popular. And um, those, you know, kind of come into play together. And then I guess I think of this kind of third element, which is people who have a lot of technical skill, who really know how to maximize you know, things that we call metadata, right? Embedding keywords kind of deeply into the architecture of a website so that that helps those uh, sites to become more visible too. And it's this confluence of the relationship between money and popularity and technical skill that I try to make more legible for people so that they do understand there are multiple processes happening. And it's not just a matter of, um, what's popular is what we see, or what's most credible is what we see. Um, Google says that they optimize for over kind of 200 different um, features or uh, qualities that they're concerned with. And I guess the question for me is, how is it that uh, certain types of decisions and values are in play, like we don't want child sexual exploitation to surface, but we'll let blackface come through, or we'll let pornography come through, right? Or we'll let racist um, or discriminatory kinds of disinformation come through. But we, but we make sure that like animal mutilation doesn't come through. Those are the kinds of questions that I think help us elucidate, you know, the complexity of these environments and more importantly, what values uh, are at play. Today's episode is sponsored by Tavur. They're the beer crate delivery service that has fixed the problems with so-called beer of the month clubs. Most importantly, they only work with truly independent breweries, none of those craft brews that are actually owned by massive multinationals. They believe that the best way to directly support the craft beer community as a whole is to only work with and promote the ferocious innovation that happens at small independent breweries. The other problem with those beer the month clubs is that most don't let you pick the beer you want and only send you a blind selection. Well, Tavur lets members pick exactly what they want on the app with two new options daily. So if you're interested in discovering rare beers and supporting independent brewers, check out Tavur, that's T-A-V-O-U-R dot com and right on your favorite app store. Be sure to use the promo code LEFT at checkout to receive a $10 credit after you spend $25. That's Tavur and promo code LEFT. 
credit scores, people don't like them. And I don't like them either um, because they're used poorly. But I'm going to give some credit to credit scores, <laughs> which is that there are rules for credit scores. And uh, there should be more rules. But one of the great things about credit scores is that um, there's a series of, of laws, I think, from the 70s. Um, one of them was called the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. And that meant that you couldn't use race or gender to decide people's uh, credit score or their credit worthiness. And the other one is um, the F Fair Credit Reporting Act, which said that you should have access to the data going into your credit score and you should be able to complain if the data is wrong. And that's where you get like the free credit reports. Mm -hmm. um, that's why we can have, we can see our free credit reports. So now like fast forward to, you know, the current internet age, we have pseudo credit scores. I call them eat scores because they're electronic. They're done on the fly by websites um, or by companies. They decide whether we're good or bad um, consumers or, or customers. There's no law they're, they're not subject to any law that's anti-discriminatory. So they can use whatever information they want about us, including like our race, including who our Facebook friends are, et cetera. Um, and we have no access to that data, nor can we complain if it's wrong. Um, so it's just, it's like the wild west. In some sense, we're going back to that, that banker who's, who's looking us up and down and deciding based on totally subjective information, whether we're worthy. And, all and this, these... by the way, I should say that th th these e-scores are not being used in exactly the same way as the FICO scores. The FICO scores, you know, there's – if you're actually being offered credit, like through a credit card, then it, it is subject to those laws I mentioned. But this is the way that the e-scores are being used. If you go to the Capital One website, then an e-score, they will, they will perform a sort of – they will profile you and decide whether you look like a high value customer or a low value customer. And depending on which kind of customer you look like, they will populate their website with different kinds of ads. So no, it's not a, it's not a credit offer, but it is the ad advertising environment that you enter into. Like, so if you, um, if you look like a high value customer, you're going to get a, an, like a credit, an advertisement for a fancy credit card with probably better deals than if you look like a low value customer. And again, it's not, it's not like fair. There's no reason to think that they're accurate. They're just doing it because they can and because it's efficient and, and profitable. And, and the data, if I understand correctly, that they're using is not that the, the uh, objective uh, and, and unarguably relevant data of your past uh, credit performance. They're using these things that you describe uh, in a lot of these algorithms that are being used to decide so many things in our lives. They're they're using proxies, which are information that is supposed to approximate uh, your credit performance, but uh, may or may not be relevant. Is that is that a fair description? Absolutely. Yeah, and I, and like again, I don't I don't want to say that I'm not a huge supporter of credit scores, especially as FICO scores are being used as proxies themselves for whether you're a moral upright citizen. And and, and many employers are allowed to look at credit reports to decide whether to offer you a job, and I think that's inappropriate. Um, if you think about the feedback loop of people who have bad credit reports because they are out of work and they need a job and it's keeping them out of a job because they have bad credit reports. It's like a terrible cycle. Mm. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue for FICO scores as the best tool ever. Um, but one great thing about FICO scores is that the data they use to build your credit report is relevant to whether you're going to pay your bills. It's questions like, do you pay your electricity bill? Do you pay your medical bill? 
Um, and that's, I, I feel like that's kind of a fair set of data to look at when you're thinking about loaning somebody money. Um, by contrast, the data that is available to say Capital One website when, when you browse to them, it has nothing to do with whether you've paid your electricity bill. It's mostly things like, were you on Facebook? What does your Facebook profile look like? Um, do you, where's your location? Where are you living right now? Or where is your um, computer situated? Is it in a poor part of Harlem? Is it in a ritzy part of the, of the upper, upper east side? That kind of question. So it's very demographic based and behavioral, consumer behavioral based. Um, and so it, it doesn't amount to much more than the, the same thing we were talking about with the banker. It just mm-hmm. sort of, sort of profiling you. And, and it happens in a heartbeat, right? It happens in milliseconds. Yeah. So, I mean, people sort of think, oh, I went to the website. You should go to the website as if it's a thing. It's not a thing. It, it is rendered when you get there. And all these decisions are made based on what they, who they think you are as a consumer. And one of the criteria, uh, I th- uh, as I understand your uh, definition of weapons of math destruction uh, for, for something being uh, a WOB is not only the effect that it has on people, whether they get jobs, whether they get credit, uh, whether they get a college education, wh- whether they manage to climb a ladder out of their particular circumstance to a better one. But it's also the fact, and you touched on it before, that the data that's going into these algorithms is secret and proprietary, and uh, it's a black box situation. Right. And I think they go hand in hand. I think like the fact that this kind of demographic profiling can be allowed to happen is because it's secret. I think if we had view into these practices, we would say, hey, that's obviously a bad idea. That's obviously profiling. It's discriminatory. Um, and it's the opposite of mobility, as you point out. Like, what are the chances that you're going to um, be able to climb out of the your um, sort of poor um, situation of birth if every time you look somewhere, every time you try something, an algorithm deems you as a likely loser and mm. prevents you from getting something? I mean, that's really what I'm talking about. And when I say my subtitle of my book is How Big Data Increases Inequality and Threatens Democracy. And when I say increases inequality, I mean – that there are algorithmic forces at work and they are, um, they are separating the winners from the losers. As I did after I left finance and joined data science, I was separating winners from losers, but I was separating them in the same old way that we used to separate them through class and race and, and gender. And all these algorithms are doing the same thing. And so it is a kind of invisible, but I believe very potent force of inequality. And it's, it is, it is squashing what's left of the American dream. Talk a bit about buckets and tribes, because we're not just being uh, separated into two categories. We're we're being uh, separated into dozens and hundreds, right? That's right. I mean, so I, as I said, I was working uh, as a data scientist after I left finance, and I uh, I was doing something I considered relatively benign. I was deciding whether people on Expedia.com deserve to see an ad. And I was like, okay, well, whatever. Nobody's going to, I know, I know. Nobody deserves to see an ad. (laughs) The idea was if they, if they were going to buy, then I wasn't going to show them an ad because it would have taken them off the website. Um, But Mm. if they weren't, they didn't seem like a likely buyer, then at least we could sort of get the three cents that we got paid to (laughs) click on the ad. Um, So who, who was deemed worthy of this ad? And I, again, I was like, this is not, this is not big potatoes, right? (laughs) Um, and then a venture capitalist came to visit our company. He was thinking of, 
he was thinking of uh, investing series B round funding. And he had us all sit down and listen to his vision of the future of the internet. And okay, venture capitalist, he's an architect, right? He's, he's the guy who decides what gets funded and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. So he has, he has influence. And his vision was this. He said, I can't wait for the day when all I see are ads for trips to Aruba and jet skis. And I never see another University of Phoenix ad because those <laughs> aren't for me. Those aren't for people like me. And like the people around me laughed. And I was like, dude, like this is dystopian. This is uh, the opposite of the internet as a democratizing force. This is actually a, the goal here. The goal is to stratify everyone by class, by gender, by race, like get, like, I want to be given opportunities. Let's leave it to other people to be preyed upon. And that's, that's what for-profit colleges do. They prey upon people and they specifically target. And I did the research on this after he said that, because I should say, like, I had never seen a university, a Phoenix ad. I didn't know what it was. I, (laughs) I had to go incognito mode um, to even get a University of Phoenix ad, because of course I was in a highly educated white woman in a Tony part of Manhattan, um, with a great job. I wasn't targeted by for-profit colleges. And yet I found out that the for-profit colleges, uh, that the University of Phoenix in particular, the parent company, Apollo Group, was the number one Google ad buyer that quarter. Wow. This wasn't a small deal. This was like the biggest advertiser on Google. Um, and moreover, I found out that for-profit colleges, um, you know, have very low graduation rates. But even if you do graduate, a diploma is not worth more than a high school diploma. Mm. And it saddled their students with enormous amounts of debt, didn't give them much of an education. It was a, it was a scheme. It was really a way of gaming the federal aid system and calling it education. And I realized that, you know, I was contributing to it. I felt complicit yet again. I felt like a co-conspirator like I had in finance. So I, I felt like, wait, I, I think what I'm doing is benign, but of course I'm good at my job and nobody stays at any internet company for more than a couple of years. So I, I develop this technology and then I share it with the people I work with and then they move on to their next job and they share that with people they're working with. And at the end of the day, I'm contributing to a system where other people are suffering, but I am never suffering, that I am, I'm only benefiting from. And that's kind of how I started seeing the world of technologists and data scientists in particular, that we're building a, a universe in which we are the winners. Today's episode is sponsored by Blinkist, the app that's here to help you read more books than you thought possible, or at least get the core insights out of them. Just as I curate and distill the most important points about political issues, Blinkist does that for thousands of nonfiction books, condensing them down into just 15 minutes for you to read or listen to as audiobooks. Eight million busy people who want to get the main points out of books quickly are already using Blinkist's massive and growing library, which includes self-help, business health, history, and of course, politics. Reading or listening to Blinks of books isn't like reading an abridged book. I found that it's really more like having a friend spend 15 minutes giving you a really detailed overview of a book with plenty of specific points and details highlighted and key conclusions fully explained. 
For instance, a book on Blinkist that's also being featured right here on today's episode is Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill. It's one of the first books of its kind that came out just a few years ago on this topic. Plus, it's a pretty solid pun. So if you want to check out Blinkist for yourself, for a limited time, they have a special offer for our listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial, which of course you can cancel at any time. Blinkist.com slash best. Every day in America, computers are helping decide who does and does not go to jail. They're called algorithmic sentencing tools, and we're starting to see that these simple machine minds, which judges depend on for advice, are racist. One of the biggest tools that gets used is just a uh, bail determination algorithm. Again, that's Damian Williams. And this bail determination algorithm is used to, well, determine bail, whether someone gets bail at all and at what level their bail is set, how expensive it will be. In a recent ProPublica report, and I'll put the link to this in the show notes, they compared two crimes. In one, an 18-year-old girl picked up an unsecured bicycle from the side of the street and tried to ride it to school. It belonged to a six-year-old boy, and when the mother of the child called the police... Brisha Borden was arrested and charged with burglary and theft of an item worth $80. In the other crime, a 41-year-old man named Vernon Prater shoplifted $86 worth of items from a Home Depot in the same neighborhood. Now, when both of these people went before the court, a computer made recommendations about bond, bail, and all the rest for each person. And it said that the bicycle thief, who committed a few juvenile misdemeanors, was a high risk for committing future crimes. And the Home Depot shoplifter, who had previously been convicted of an armed robbery, was a low risk for future crime. Now, why? Because the bicycle thief was black. The Home Depot thief was white. And worse still, this computer, it got it wrong. The high-risk criminal never committed another crime. The low-risk one is serving an eight-year sentence for another robbery he committed after the computer told the judge he wasn't concerned. Now, according to ProPublica, these algorithms are in use right now in Arizona, Colorado, Delaware, Kentucky, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Virginia, Washington, and Wisconsin, and they'll likely spread. Non-white defendants were recommended bail less often, and when they were recommended bail, they were recommended bail at a higher price point than white defendants. Well, how is that being employed like how does that get used actually get used by human beings in the court system so and the court system that recommendation gets folded into um the decision that gets made by a judge or more likely a you know a judge's clerk in the back office when going about determining whether the person in front of them actually will have the ability to post bail and uh if that is then if the recommendation is assumed to be uh clean that is, a machine made this determination. The math says this is what it should be set at, so we trust the math, we trust the machine, and we just move forward. If it's assumed that you know 
there's no way bias can work its way into these kinds of things, or it's not even assumed, but it's never even thought about or considered, then people will just trust the determination of the thing, use it to make their recommendations. Um, and at that point, a judge says, well, um, it looks like your likelihood of you know, flight or your likelihood of recidivism is higher. Therefore, we will go about doing uh, this in this way, even if that person has no history uh, of flight or recidivism, even if they have, you know, a first offense is what they're seeing in front of them. That's the tendency. That's the likelihood uh -huh. for a non-white defendant is for that to be shown as higher. See, I, I guess I had this crazy image in my head of the, you know, the judge is back there just musing like Gandalf, you know, about the what shall I do? But I, di I didn't know that he had like that's a, like everybody's image of how the how the system works, right? But that's not it anymore. There's, you know, there's there's a there's a computer system. But there is something more frightening than a racist, biased artificial intelligence. It's that these algorithms don't just incorrectly predict the future. When we take their advice, when we are guided by their output, we give them the power to create the future they have predicted. When they look at the world they've manipulated, they make predictions based on that new data. And then we begin spiraling into a machine-created world built on machine bias and prejudice feedback loops. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a, a huge worry. Um, and it's in part uh, worrisome because so few people do know um, what's happening already. Again, that's Shannon Valor. So a lot of the discussion around AI uh, talks about what's coming in the future and what's scary about that is that people aren't paying attention to what's already happening um, and ways in which predictive algorithms, which in many cases really don't rise to the level that we would necessarily want to call it artificial intelligence, right? There are a lot of much simpler, stupider algorithms that are used to predict. And those are already being used, as you mentioned, in the judicial system, uh, they're being used um, in public agencies, often in ways that do tremendous damage. There's an expression among data sciences, um, algorithms that shit where they eat. That's Alistair Kroll. Uh, and that uh, refer a good example of that is predictive policing. There's a lot of criticism of predictive policing, some of it substantiated, that says that when you predict where a crime will happen, the cops go there. Um, all arrests, by definition, happen where there are cops. Therefore, the arrests go up in that area, which reinforces the algorithm, which in turn leads to a higher crime rate in the area, which lowers the property values, which leads to all the rich people leaving, which leads to lower taxes in the area for poorer coverage, downward spiral. So whenever you get an algorithm that shits where it eats, um, in other words, where the, the output is tied to the input in an unexpected and sometimes non-obvious way, uh, that's a real problem. Exactly. And from that point forward, if those recommendations are followed and they're not questioned and they're not corrected against by someone who has actual you know, input into the system, who has the ability to adjust the, the settings in the system, if it's not corrected against, then yes, that is exactly what will happen. That recommendation will be taken and it will be taken as new input by that system and it will go, see, I was right. And since I was right, I can go ahead and make these kinds of determinations with greater uh, credibility and, you know, more certainty in the future. Um, there are some uh, well-known uh, cases in Michigan and in Idaho where uh, there were some algorithmic decision support systems used in unemployment and disability benefits offices 
uh, that were uh, operating in um, wildly arbitrary and unjustified ways uh, that hurt a lot of a lot of people. And the state agencies basically weren't paying attention uh, to to the algorithms. They were they were trusting the algorithms to do what they thought they were supposed to do. Uh, Boston has an app called Street Bump that was designed to measure where uh, potholes were. So Street Bump was a mobile app that you'd put on the passenger seat next to you. You'd leave it on and it would measure using the accelerometers on the phone where you were going to hit a bump. And it would send that information back so the city of Boston could fix uh, all the potholes, which sounds great on the surface. I mean, there's no data bias in there. It's collecting actual facts. But it's actually a case of sampling bias because the kind of people who drive themselves to work with a spare passenger seat and an unlimited data plan on a modern phone are probably different from the kind of people who are busy on their phone while they're taking the bus to and from work. And so what it did was show the city where all the potholes were near rich neighborhoods. And since that time, they've had to correct that by attaching it to garbage trucks and buses and so on. And it's given them good data. So I don't think it's it, I think this issue of, of data ethics is not unique to machine learning. But I think machine learning complicates it because the software gets to write the next version of itself. And so things can spiral out of control much more quickly than a simple algorithm. So we, one of the things we have to think about is um, thinking of AI and predictive algorithms as a problem that's not uh, something we need to prepare for, but a problem that's already on our hands and that we have to start uh, fixing. So in terms of uh, self-fulfilling prophecies, I think that's a really interesting point. And I haven't seen a lot of conversation about that element, um, about the way in which uh, our, uh, our biased algorithms are actually reinforcing harmful social patterns. So I think the, you know, the example of uh, something like uh, a program that's used to decide whether uh, someone is at high risk for reoffending, right? And if that program overestimates the risk of uh, someone who's been convicted of a crime reoffending, and then sends them to jail for a longer period of time as a result, or uh, denies them bail or parole as a result, or assigns them to uh, a maximum security prison instead of a um, a lower category of risk. Well, we know that all those things are correlated with actually increasing uh, the likelihood of reoffending, right? The more time you spend in prison, the more time you spend um, in uh, a, pr a prison with other high-risk offenders, uh, the more likely you yourself are to later reoffend. And so here we have a system that is falsely assigning a risk score that then puts the person into a condition which increases the chances that they will do the things that the machine predicted wrongly that they were predisposed to do. So it's this very vicious cycle that uh, we're already at risk of uh, perpetuating with machines that are being inappropriately used. And the problem, of course, is that in many of these cases, because the algorithms are proprietary, and because the companies that design them won't allow them uh, to be opened up for public inspection, there's really uh, no way to reliably es establish uh, whether these algorithms are truly flawed 
or whether there's some other problem in the way that they're being implemented. So until we get people behind a movement for greater algorithmic transparency, I'm afraid we're not going to make much progress. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, stop algorithmic bias. Turn two frameworks for fair and just data practices into federal privacy law. Nearly a year after the Facebook and Cambridge Analytica scandal, the Government Accountability Office released a report on the lack of a comprehensive federal privacy law governing private companies' collection, use, or sale of user data. Its big conclusion was that, yeah, it'd be good to have a federal law that protects people. Who would have thought? Luckily, a framework already exists as a roadmap to creating this desperately needed federal law. It's known as the Fair Information Practices, or FIPS for short. FIPS includes eight thorough recommendations to create comprehensive privacy protection and digital rights in the United States, including establishing fair and just data practices and accountability to counter bias and discrimination. It also goes after inequality with a provision to prohibit take-it-or-leave-it terms of service. These terms require individuals with less means to waive their privacy rights in order to get a quality good or service for less or for free. The Electronic Privacy Information Center, known as EPIC, in addition to 15 other consumer privacy and social justice organizations, have signed on to the FIPS framework. And in February, EPIC, along with 40 civil rights, civil liberties, and consumer groups, groups, wrote a letter to Congress to specifically address data-driven discrimination. The letter outlined the critical importance for any privacy legislation created to be consistent with the, quote, civil rights principles for the era of big data, unquote. These five principles are ending high-tech profiling, ensuring fairness in automated decisions, preserving constitutional principles, enhancing individual control of personal information, and protecting people from inaccurate data. You can help demand the end of algorithmic bias and discrimination. Call your members of Congress to demand that FIPS and the five civil rights principles are included in the creation of future U.S. privacy law. Learn more about this issue by going to epic.org and searching for algorithmic transparency under their privacy campaigns. You can also go to the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights site at civilrights.org and visit the Media and Tech page under their Our Work tab. On social media, check out the hashtag data discrimination and search for the term or hashtag algorithmic bias. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if making our technological world safer, more transparent, and discrimination-free is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the fair and just data practices and the five civil rights principles via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? 
Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. Again, think about algorithms, right? These computer programs that are increasingly making financial decisions, who to approve for mortgages, credit cards, and the like. And then you get the human dimension, where, again, you're seeing with the Republicans gutting any sort of regulation of banks, auto lenders, and the like, who have been proven to discriminate against blacks and Latinos, Asian Americans, and First Nations folks. So you have the human decision-making that is profoundly biased, interacting with computer decisions that are written by people who have their own biases. You bet, because guess what? What's going to happen now? You had Wall Street bet against Americans and effectively decimate the economy and the real estate market. And now guess what data is going to be used to build and perfect the next generation of real estate software and machine learning? It's going to learn that, oh, all of these African-Americans and Latinos who defaulted on their home loans, those people are not reliable for real estate investment. So this is what I mean about how the data gets constructed under discriminatory practice, predatory practice, and then it becomes normalized as a baseline for the future. And I think this is the kind of thing that is going to be incredibly difficult to intervene upon. I don't think that even the court and judges have the kind of data literacy that they would need to even adjudicate these kinds of cases. Prometheus and Techne and fire. I just love that story, that myth. So we get these tools from the gods, we get fire, and then we're punished, right? Because we don't have the maturity to understand what we've unleashed upon the world. Some things that some folks would laugh about, but I think, again, are deadly serious. What do we know about how these computer programs are unable to identify or they misidentify people who are not white? Because, again, they're just looking at, you know, they're taught to say this is human, this is a face, this is skin color. And literally, black and brown people are invisible to lots of these programs. We know that, for example, facial recognition, in some ways, I think some people are arguing like, well, hey, that's a good thing. Because, you know, maybe black people will not be hyper-targeted from these technologies. But I think what we're going to see is that just that's going to be perfected. Certainly, these facial recognition technologies in particular, are really about surveillance and control, automating social control. So no longer do you need a human being to pick a face out of the crowd and target it. This idea is that the recognition of people can be automated is really important. And I think we'll see that increasingly that's being tested out in immigration and trying to find people at the border, you know, making public policy decisions about who's in and who's out. It's certainly a huge part of policing. And the future of predictive policing, I think, will be reliant upon these technologies of recognition, biometric technologies of recognition. But, you know, there's also the kind of the unseen part of this. We're talking about people who will be targets of these technologies. But there's also what it takes to bolster this kind of digital control and flourishing in our society, even if you are not even interested in surveillance technologies and you're just thinking about how much you love a book on a Kindle, the other seemingly benign areas of interest around the digital, what it takes in terms of raw mineral extraction out of, for example, right now, the Congo or Australia to make microprocessor chips. I mean, you're seeing incredible devastation in the places where the raw mineral extraction is needed. And of course, these are ecological issues as well, because when we're done with all of these devices, you know, our Internet of Things devices, they're going into huge toxic e-waste cities that are emerging on the west coast of Africa, for example, outside of Praha and Ghana. The environmental impact of all of these devices should not be lost on us because it, we're seeing climate change in relationship to toxicity. We're seeing refugee crises 
in relationship to environmental change. These things are not disconnected in their material forms and functions. And I think this is one of the things that I really try to talk about in my own work, that all of it is material. It's not ephemeral. It's not a cloud. You know, it's not in the sky. It's not benign. It's actually deeply connected to these previous colonial patterns of extraction and disposal and and the people who become, again, the most harmed over and over are poor people of color around the globe. It is disheartening. You know, again, thinking about this moment, just to put a bow on it, we have a crisis of digital literacy. Literally, you would have people believing that what they see on Facebook is true. So then we also have a crisis in terms of the philosophy of science, in terms of these engineers, software and other, who are not learning about social implications and social context and power. So if you were going to go out and get the huge grant and try to address those issues, what would be two or three things that you would do? Well, first I would say you can't design technology for society and you don't know anything about society. So we're going to have to engage people with deep knowledge about society, people who study post-colonialism, people who study ethnic studies women's studies, sociology, the humanists have to be in a a significant driver's seat about putting the brakes on some of the choices that are being made. And I would also say we need real attention to the policy and legal regimes, which I think are a huge source of protection for the public, because what's happening now is technology is designed an R&D lab, maybe a university lab, and it goes straight to market. And there's no public discussion about whether we even want these things or not. And certainly there's no long-term study about the social consequences or political consequences of them. I think you're right on. In fact, there was a new study that just came out by the Holmes Report that shows that increasingly over time, the public is not going to care and not be able to recognize the difference between paid media, PR, research, facts, you know, it's kind of all the same. So with the decline of a particular type of literacy, I think this is a real wake-up call for huge reinvestment back into the public sphere, back into public education, back into making college accessible for all Americans, be a human right that you can have as much education as you want. And we need a huge reprioritization of the distribution of resources in our society. What's at stake is democracy, for sure. We are moving toward crisis point where there will be the ultra-rich and there will be everybody else just trying to survive. To me, that's worth galvanizing and mobilizing academics and journalists and people to really make these issues plain and give people points of entry or create points of entry, whether it's labor unions or other types of organized social movements, to push back on what feel like inevitable sequences that we're going to face from investment in the digital We've just heard clips today starting with analysis explaining the fundamentals of algorithms. Inflection Point spoke with Dr. Sophia Noble with a focus on the Google search algorithm, which is an advertising platform, not an informational platform. Le Show had on Dr. Kathy O'Neill, who compared the myriad algorithms that constantly evaluate us to credit scores, but without the regulation. You Are Not So Smart discussed the effect of algorithmic decision-making feedback loops that create self-fulfilling predictions. 
our activism for today is in support of fair information practices. And finally, we just heard at the Chauncey DeVega show on which Dr. Noble laid out a few of the solutions we need to be working toward in this fight. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips covering how the libertarianism that permeates Silicon Valley ties into the reinforcing of structural biases, just like libertarianism always does, plus more on machine bias in the justice system and how search algorithms influence elections. To hear that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a full member on Patreon at the $6 level, though if that's too steep for you, consider getting the show ad-free for only 2 bucks a month, and remember that our weekly poll to help choose the topics we cover each week is free to everyone. You can simply follow the show on Patreon, no financials involved, and take part in the poll each weekend. Visit patreon.com slash bestofleft for all the details. And of course, you can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, this is Heather from Texas again. Um, I wanted to thank you for replying to my voicemail. Um, I did have some sort of commentary to to reply to what you said. Um, so I will I will agree with you on you know not just the back and forth between uh, healthcare professionals and insurance causing the inflation of healthcare costs. I know that's not the only thing that's that's going on, and I I guess I never really considered the uh, percentage based profits that insurance companies really profit off of. Uh, and so you make good points. I will kind of disagree, at least from a healthcare professional um, point of view, on, on your point that they also want healthcare costs to go up. I would completely disagree. Most healthcare professionals that I know genuinely want to have a good, meaningful impact on their patients' lives. Uh, I don't think I've met anybody in the healthcare field that you know is in it for profit and profit only. Now, that's not to say that there aren't people like that in the healthcare world, and there's probably more people at the administrative level, but that's probably more of their goal. But at least on the level of doctors, nurses, pharmacists, techs, you know, all the people kind of in the weeds doing the work, most want affordable healthcare for the patients, and most want their patients to have good, meaningful, quality lives. That being said, on your kind of on your analogy with the broken bone, I like that. Uh, with wanting to come just completely break it and reset it. I do have some issue with that. I get what you're saying. I totally understand. And I do thank you for kind of refreshing my memory on healthcare history. It's been a while, but thank you. So where I do not agree with having just a uh, breaking the bone resetting is that that would severely hurt anybody right now that has any sort of healthcare issue in their life. Because we do not know how long it's going to take for something stable to come back into play. If we were just to totally throw the whole system, throw it at the wall, start over, there's just so many millions of people that uh, would be would be left without. And so I, I can't help but think of them when when we're considering this. And to, to add another sort of medical analogy, uh, with a lot of patients, you know, if they if they have hypertension, if they have diabetes, if they have cholesterol problems, what have you, a lot of patients, you know, they know that their lifestyle isn't great and they just want they want a pill to fix it, an easy pill, you know, something make it go away and they can continue living their lives as they were. Whereas, a most health condition, it's not going to be just a 
pill to fix it. It might alleviate, but it's ultimately going to progress and it's ultimately going to have some side effects and more symptoms and it's going to going to get worse. Whereas a lot of conditions you can actually treat with diet and exercise. It's going to take a while though. It usually takes several months if not years and it may not completely cure them, but it's going to have a huge impact in addition to the pill. So they they need medical care and but they also are going to have to make huge long-term plans to change their lifestyle in order to have an impact. And so bringing it back to healthcare, it's going to be the same. I don't think we can just create a a new healthcare system overnight and want it to work. It's going to take time. And so I know that with Obamacare, it was meant to be sort of a transitionary system. It was supposed to give patients more options as far as um, health insurance, and it was also supposed to help kind of direct health insurance to just to bring them back down. It's supposed to kind of give them competition and uh, something that they can model themselves after, and also get more people on sort of a pseudo universal healthcare plan of sorts. And then the problem we had was, you know. We had a new presidency, and they're now trying to get rid of that. And so I do understand the, the issue of trying to set these long-term goals, trying to have a 10- to 20-year plan when, you know, every four to eight years we can have someone try to come in and overthrow everything. And so that's a huge issue, one which I do not have the answers for. I wish I did because I just do not see the healthcare issue being solved overnight, just no matter what we do, I do not see us being able to have something up and running that is functional and moral and efficient. Any, you know, it, it's going to take time. I, I would think at least 10 to 20 years just to get everything functioning. And also, another point I wanted to make was we would really need to bundle the healthcare reform along with education reform because, at least for myself, and I know several other healthcare professionals. I'm not in it necessarily to make money, but I do need to be able to pay off my student loans. So if we're going to um, completely reform the entire healthcare industry, that's great. I'm all for it. But if I'm then not able to pay back my loans and I have to go default on my loans, I'm going to be sad. It's just going to suck. And that's going to be a lot of people that are in the same situation because right now we have these schools that are able to kind of leverage us by saying like, oh, you know, sure, this tuition is really expensive and you're going to end up $200,000 in debt. Oh, but you're going to be making at least 150000 a year, so you should be fine. And so if, if we could kind of bundle a sort of education and healthcare reform, I think we would have better outcomes. I think we would have less negative pushback from the healthcare community, most of which do want healthcare reform, but are scared of losing their way of life and losing uh, an ability to pay back those loans. That's at least on my mind. That is a concern for me. So um, once again, I appreciate you so much for responding. I love listening to your podcast, and I can't wait to hear what more you have to offer. And so uh, I'll, I'll keep listening. Thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, and the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, again, to respond to Heather, who makes lots of good points, and and uh, thankfully for me, the instances where she is disagreeing with me, even if only marginally, it turns out I think that's mostly based on miscommunication, mostly on my part from not being clear enough. So I'm happy to clarify a few things, and, and I think we're pretty much on, on the same page here. So uh, let's see, the rising costs... Uh, you know, I, I implied that health provider is the actual, the doctors, the nurses, that they want personally, actively for prices to go up. And Heather said, you know, I don't know about that. Like, I think the people doing the real work, they want healthcare to be affordable. I completely agree with that. As, as she said, it's more like the administrative people, uh, who may be in the camp of wanting prices to go up. And what I meant, what, what I was describing is systemically the, the incentive structures are such that all layers of the healthcare system sort of quote unquote want prices to go up because there's no countervailing pressure. I mean, the, the pressure is like people's literal ability to pay that's a downward pressure and uh and then you know some degree of humanity getting infused into the system and and the, the people actually providing the services is definitely part of that so uh, i i was describing sort of the systemic forces on, on in that sort of uh, uh the way an economist would and not taking humans into account but absolutely i i'm in favor of taking humans into account and the way they actually feel about things and and how people believe things and take actions in ways that aren't exactly in line with their economic interests and this is one of those cases so of course you know many many doctors absolutely want single payer recognizing that with that, they would probably experience some degree of pay cut, but because they want people to have health care, they recognize it as a moral imperative to be in favor of a system like that. You know, I mean, like I have a, a friend who works in the health insurance industry and her job was literally to raise people's premiums after analyzing their data and saying, oh, you know, the, your company has a couple of people who got injured, so we have to charge you all more. And like, that was her job. That's what she had to do. But she hated it. She, she recognized how terrible that system is. And, and so, yeah, of course, there are millions of good people working in that system, hating the way the system works, but sort of being subject to the, the structural forces at play. Uh, secondly, the, the broken bone analogy that I used the only disagreement we have here is the idea that I would be in favor of that metaphoric bone break to be done irresponsibly. You know, that's, that's like a doctor saying like, oh boy, I hate to tell you, your, your broken bone, it did not set properly. We really need to get that fixed for you. Unfortunately, we're going to have to re-break it in order to set it properly. And so... What I recommend is that you just do the same thing you did when you broke it the first time. So when you were jumping on the trampoline and fell off onto the ground, just go ahead and do that again. Like, that, no, 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 that, that's not how that's going to work. They're going to do it in a much more responsible way. 
I'm not in favor of throwing our our entire system in the garbage and then beginning the process of trying to build something else. I am in favor of responsibly and consciously and thoughtfully implementing a new system like single payer that has a transition period and and covers as many people as possible and doesn't leave anyone behind and and all of that. So pretty pretty simple one to to clarify, but if in case I wasn't clear before, I'm glad to have the opportunity to to clarify that now. And and then um I also completely agree that this wasn't a disagreement. I just thought it was a really good point that Heather brought up that healthcare reform really needs to be coupled with education reform because as she laid out a doctor who has to pay a huge amount for their education can only do that with the assumption that they're going to make a lot of money on the back end. But if we need to reform our system and that involves pay cuts for healthcare providers, well, then we can't be charging them six figures that they have to pay themselves in order to get their education. Uh, so, so definitely in favor of that. That was brought up in in, you know, probably more than one clip that I listened to, but didn't end up putting in that most recent single payer show. Uh, but uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that Bernie Sanders, one of the most out in front people promoting single payer is also out there promoting uh, cost free universal uh, university access. So I think that means that, you know, Heather and I are not the only people who see the connection between these things. Now, if you have comments to add to this or any other topic, please keep them coming in. The voicemail line is at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Bestofleft.com